Glocal, podcast on locally incubated global technology powerhouses. I'm practicing combat sports and have been doing so for 14 years now. Did 10 years of karate and now um, I'm doing jiu-jitsu. So it has been my passion. I want to think that my passion did not uh, impact the business decision too much uh, when we did the analysis. <laughs> uh, but at the end of the day, I'm really happy that for me, this was a great way to kind of connect the dots and do the two things that I love on, in the same project. Combat sports has been Costa's passion for 14 years. That explains why he built the leading combat sports network out of Bulgaria. After starting out as a horizontal entertainment streaming platform, he decided to focus vertically and double down on fight. Aggregating the fragmented long tails seems to be the winning strategy so far. He previously existed and bought back his company during the 2001 financial crisis. Let's move on to the episode. Hey Costa, how are you? How is the weather in Sofia? Hey Anis, I'm good. Uh, weather is great. Summer is still here. Yeah, same here in Istanbul. It's so warm and sunny. I thought it's always summer in Istanbul. Yeah, people think, I mean, tend to think that, but it's not. Actually, me and my girlfriend, uh, we argue that, I mean, she says that Istanbul has more rainy days and cloudy days than London, um, which can't be the case, right? I mean, it's bullshit. Yeah. I'll be shocked if this is the case. Yeah, I mean, there is no data to prove that. But then again, you don't want to argue with your girlfriend. Yeah, so she's right. She's always right uh, for both our happinesses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, shit. But yeah, I mean, yes. she'll be happy. She'll be happy, I'm sure. And we have this on record now. Yeah, good. Thanks for joining the podcast. I want to first start with your background. I know that you worked for IBM and then started your own software development company, which got acquired by FromFab, which was one of the leading IT consulting firms in Europe. Um, you acted as the COO there, and then after the financial meltdown in 2001, you separated from FarmFab and became the CEO of BNR. How did all that happen, and how was it to live through two big financial meltdowns, 2001 and 2008, in just a decade? Uh, sure, sure. By way of a background, uh, my background is actually engineering. And when I started my first company, I knew nothing about business. And we actually almost started by accident. Uh, me and my partner, uh, Nick, back then were working at IBM. IBM was wanted to uh, basically outsource the project that we were working on. And we used this as an opportunity to start a small consulting business working on that same project. And this was actually our first customer. So it was kind of almost by accident. And then we started to grow the customer base little by little and started to learn a little bit more about business kind of in addition to technology. And this took us some time. In the 2000s, uh, we got in discussions with a Dutch company, uh, Netlink that was interested to expand their engineering capacity and was looking for potential acquisitions in Eastern Europe. Was that normal for a Western European company to come and buy an Eastern European company just for the technical skills and the talent that lies within that company? Um, did that happen a lot back in 2000? I'm just asking because I was like nine years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. It was actually, it became much normal. Later on, we saw a lot of acquisitions uh, in Eastern Europe from, from mm -hmm. uh, big IT companies that were simply looking for skilled engineering resource. And now if you look at in the landscape in Bulgaria, you would see all the big giants uh, having relatively big operation units, um, software development units in Bulgaria. And many yeah. of those are, were a result of uh, acquisitions, um, guys like VMware and many others. Um, so it, it became the norm afterwards. Uh, back in the 2000s, it was one of the very, very early deals. It was shortly after the, the change of the political regime in Bulgaria. The whole environment was very, very different from from now and from the valley. So 
you could imagine for us, this was a very interesting opportunity. And the Dutch being traditionally very, very aggressive traders back from the old days, traveling all over the world and looking for opportunities. They were pretty much doing the same with Eastern Europe. Right after college, what you did was you worked at IBM. You realized that IBM is going to outsource this one project and sold the opportunity. So you became an entrepreneur, started your own company, which actually services to IBM. Um, and then you exited that company to the Dutch guys. And then the financial meltdown happened, right? So while we were in negotiation with the Dutch guys, they got acquired by the Swedish guys, okay. Frampap. And at that time, they were the largest internet consultants in Europe, something like Razorfish. And mm-hmm. they, they acquired the, the Dutch guys. We continued the conversation, the MA discussions with, uh, with Frampap and ended up becoming part of the group. They acquired 51% with the option to acquire the rest. And for, for about almost a year, uh, we had a really great opportunity, which was very unique back then, uh, to work with the vast majority of the big accounts in Europe. So we worked with companies such as Bosch, Volvo, AXA, Whirlpool, and many others. For a small Bulgarian company and a small Bulgarian team, a really kind of very, very interesting opportunity. And then the then the dot-com bubble burst. And Pramfab being the largest in Europe was very heavily hit by this thing. And, and we ended up in a situation where we had a relatively big team, but basically no projects. And at that time, we kind of used the opportunity to buy back our shares from Pramfab and rebranded the company to, to BNR. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now it all makes sense. Um, you rebranded to BNR and you were only operating in Sofia back then. I mean, the team was in Sofia, so you bought the shares in the Sofia subsidiary, right? Correct. Yes. Um, and then you acted as a CEO until 2012. And after that, you started Flips with two other co-founders. But I see that you had huge experience with B2B, but then you did like a 180 degree pivot and started a B2C business, uh, which is Flips. Can you tell me how that happened? And can you tell us a bit about what Flips did back then? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually one of the kind of the, the the topics that we had a lot of discussions around in the early days. Do we want to because with the same technology we could have taken the B two B route as well and basically license the technology to media companies. So we started by developing a technology that was built with the vision to uh, basically allow us to create a virtual cable company to deliver video to the big TV screens in people's living rooms without any hardware. So without the necessity to build the infrastructure, uh, we built a technology to compete head-to-head with the cable companies. And this was great. It was in the early days of some of the standards. Uh, we got a, a couple of uh, granted patents. We got a lot of user traction, even though there was no much content on the platform, but people just kind of loved the experience. And this was pre-Chromecast, so in the very, very early days of kind of casting technologies. And basically, this is how we started the technology. And then we had to decide, do we want to go the B2B route, which was, as you said, kind of, uh, we knew a little bit more about it. Do we want to go direct to consumer, which we believe is uh, has a bigger potential for uh, building a larger company, mm-hmm. higher valuation based on its, its own a massive user base. But it, it was also the more kind of risky path. And, and we picked the, the B2C model and kind of we, we aggregated some content from various partners. We launched the service. Um, as I mentioned, we got kind of quite a significant uh, initial traction. And then it came a point where we realized we need to actually pick a content vertical and build deep enough content offering. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, to, yeah, just to cut you there a bit before talking about Fight, um, you also raised $4 million from Early Bird, Draper, Launch Hub, and the Turkey Super Angel uh, Snowball back in 2014. How tough was it to fundraise as a Bulgarian entity and how big was your traction back then? It's compared to now, there were actually, Launch Hub was the first Bulgarian fund back then and they just started. Early Bird, this was the first Early Bird fund uh, in Eastern Europe and they have just started. Actually, we had to wait for, for a few months for, for them to finalize the the fund. So, and if you look at the kind of the VC landscape, there were not that many options regionally. 
the options for us were to go to London or, or, uh, or the US rather. And actually, Tim Draper was one of our very early investors. Uh, he joined to a convertible note. This probably helped a little bit convince some of the other investors, the local investors. And generally speaking, there were less opportunities back then. And how big was the company? How many, um, either, I mean, you can give me any figures, whether that's revenue, number of users, um, any retention figures that you can give, if, of course, if you remember. At that time, we had a lot of installs, about 10 million installs uh, on the app already. Ooh, huge. Uh, but if you look at the retention numbers, they were not exciting. Mm-hmm. And those 10 millions were actually organic. We didn't spend a dime on, on user acquisition. So at that time, people were just kind of loving the experience, sharing with friends. They were downloading the app. And then within within a week, they realized there's not much content to watch. Yeah, it, it showed the great demand on the market for streaming, right? I mean, now that there's like Chromecast, Apple TV, Smart TVs, um, the explosion of Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, whatever. Um, even back in 2014, and you, when you guys launched Flips, getting that many downloads organically shows the big demand in the market for service like that. True. Um, but you then opened an office in New York. Why was that? And how did you sustain culture between Sofia and New York? We actually, from the very early days, we kind of wanted to go after the global market and the global audience. And we realized it's easier to do that uh, through a U.S. entity. So uh, for a long time, it's a U.S. company with a operational unit in Bulgaria, fully owned operational unit in Bulgaria. So at that time, and, and this helped not only with kind of the overall company positioning, but also in terms of some of the business relationships, uh, contracts going after the big media guys. Uh, we always knew we had to be a, a U.S. company to go after uh, our vision. My partner, Methodi, is based out of New York. So uh, picking New York mm-hmm. as, uh, as a headquarter for the company was a uh, relatively easy solution, a decision. Back then, I moved to the Valley, though. So I spent three and a half years in San Mateo, where uh, Tim Draper has a co-working space. And uh, he was kind enough to invite us there. Uh, so the company was split in terms of kind of executive team between the West Coast and the East Coast. And, and we always had our uh, engineering team uh, in Bulgaria. Mm-hmm. So Bulgaria is amazing from a technology and a talent perspective. That's why you had your hub over there. Um, but then you had a New York satellite office and you yourself, you were based in the Valley. It should be pretty tough to sustain the culture, I guess. Um, but just like you've said, you decided to verticalize afterwards. Um, and then you launched Fight, which is a digital combat sports network. Um, when did you realize that you should focus on combat sports? And was it the only vertical that you guys doubled down on? Or did you try different verticals and um, the market appetite here was just greater. So through the experience with Flips, we managed to tap into different content verticals and kind of test different uh, different verticals, different business models. And Fight was something that we actually did a few events within Flips and, and we realized the potential. So the kind of the type of engagement this creates amongst users. And we always knew there's something there. But when we kind of take the, the decision to pick one single content vertical and go vertical after vertical rather than all of them at the same time. We did a kind of deeper research at the market. We looked at the different business models. We looked at where our technology is best fit. And the thing is, since a big chunk of our technology is about streaming to the big screens, it does make more sense for live programming and for uh, longer term programming. I, I mean, if you if you are about to watch like two minutes mm-hmm. YouTube clip, you could easily do it on the small screen. Uh, but when you pay 50 bucks to watch an event with 10 friends, you generally want to want this to be on the big screen. So Looking at live programming and sports was a very natural thing to do. And then within sports, there are different business models, but we looked at the, at the verticals that are mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. popular on, on pay-per-view uh, because pay-per-view allows us to do revenue share-based deals. It's a segment where the event organizer works with multiple distributors, so none of the distributors has the exclusive rights. So it's a little bit easier for a startup to, uh, to play this game compared to, uh, let's say, a subscription service where you need to go and license the content. 
Yeah, a lot of the big guys who are entering streaming um, are also trying to grab a mark, market out of sports. Um, I mean, Amazon has been pushing that for a while now to grow their, grow their own user base. So I guess um, that's why combat sports would make sense. You stream more than 1,000 events per year now at Fight, as far as I know. How big is the overall market for combat sports? I mean, you can answer either number of events or number of uh, viewers, fans of the sports. How big is the market? We already work with, uh, I would say, the majority of the kind of the more uh, relevant combat sports organizations. We have 250 partners under contract on the platform, ranging from the top guys, BBC uh, with Fox, top rank with ESPN and, and many others, down to a number of good local organizations, combat sports organizations. So in terms of number of organizations, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a few hundred worldwide. In terms of events, it's actually a very large number, but more importantly, it's how many of those events actually uh, matter and how many of those events people want to watch. And, and we see this changing over time. Uh, there are some great international promotions that people were simply not aware about. Today, we stream a lot of the kind of the, the top promotions in, in multiple countries. So we work with the top promotion out of Japan, which is Ryzen, top promotion out of Russia, which is M1, and many, many others, which on the, in the West, people didn't know before we showed up on the scene. In terms of quantity is not an issue. There are, there are tons of events in combat sports. And one of the challenges in the space, though, as with many other spaces, is that the kind of the huge engagement is concentrated around a uh, fewer number of, uh, of events. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, looking at today, uh, on your LinkedIn, it says that you have 1.5 million users um, on Fight. Can you provide us any other traction metrics about Fight? Uh, sure. Uh, it's actually the I need to update my profile on LinkedIn. Uh, it's one point six now. <laughs> yeah, it's always the case, right? It's always the case. I mean, when you go on someone's LinkedIn, it's always updated. But that's good. That's good. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. yeah. So yes, we we have one point six uh, million registered users. Uh, as I mentioned to you, we have uh, two hundred and fifty content partners mm-hmm. under contract, including a lot of the big guys. We do over a uh, thousand live events per year. We launched uh, a subscription service just a couple months ago, and we have a five-digit number of subscribers already. Mm-hmm. So we're quite happy with the initial traction we see there. We kind of like the, the trajectory on which Fight is currently. Where's the majority of the user base right now? If you look at the demographics first, uh, you would not be shocked to see that it's primarily male audience and kind of 24 to 45. Oh, I never thought of that. I thought it would be right. <laughs> <laughs> like 50-plus women watching comments. Right. <laughs> <laughs> not that many, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, it, it's, it's, by the way, changing. Not, not necessarily with us only. Um, industry-wise, it's, it's changing. And a lot of the kind of the WWEs and UFCs of the world are kind of uh, making some focused effort to get a more mass appeal to combat sports. But uh, anyway, so um, demographics is that if you look at the uh, geographical distribution of our users, Number one is the U.S., with the majority of our uh, paying customers being based out of the U.S., uh, followed by pretty much the rest of the English-speaking part of the world, the U.K., Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And then we started seeing some really interesting growth in uh, Scandinavia recently. And which sport is the most popular? I tried, I tried to guess. I was looking on your website. I couldn't guess. We were focused to stream everything that, as we say, happens on a mat or between the ropes. So we do everything. But there are three or four sports that kind of drive the majority of the revenues and the majority of the engagement. And these are MMA, boxing, and pro wrestling uh, with about an equal share, uh, each one of those three. And then mm-hmm. it's kickboxing. Interesting, interesting. And who are some of the competitors in this space? I mean, as I've said, like all of the giant companies have in- entered into video streaming, whether live or on demand, um, following Netflix's success, of course. Um, do you think any of these tech giants will become your competitors? 
in the future? Interestingly enough, we're still competing mainly with, uh, with traditional distributors, uh, meaning cable and satellite companies uh, in the US. Uh, because still like 80% of the pay-per-view buys happen through DISH, DirecTV, uh, Comcast, and all the other satellite and, and cable carriers in the US. So to a certain extent, we are more interested to kind of educate the audience and move the audience from traditional to digital. Uh, the good thing is that this is happening naturally. Kind of pay-per-view has been probably the last segment to, to transition to digital, but we see this happening pretty fast right now. And this trend supports our, our growth nicely. Yeah, we're, we're mostly competing with those guys. And then, of course, as, as things move to digital, we do start to see uh, strong digital competition as well. There are a few companies that started doing combat sports last year. Uh, we actually partner with some of them because at the end of the day, we also have the common interest to grow combat sports and also grow combat sports on digital. So we have some common, common goals with those guys. And we mainly compete when it comes to content mm -hmm. acquisition. Do you have exclusivity on content? I was going to ask you that as well. Yeah, for, for some of the content, we do have exclusivity. So for some, we don't. Uh, if you look at kind of the big pay-per-views, they're generally available across all the major distributors. So we don't have exclusivity in those cases for our core markets, let's say for the US. But then we have exclusivity in many cases for uh, different regions outside of the US. We have exclusivity for local promotions that maybe have a great TV deal in their country, but they don't have global reach and, and we're their uh, global distributor and either contractually or de facto we're the exclusive place where you could see uh, this particular content. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And you haven't fundraised ever since the initial round uh, in 2014. Uh, you even pivoted the company from Philips to Fight during that time frame, um, I guess you were break even and you continue to be that way. What was that a conscious decision? And will you move forward with no external funding? Uh, we actually did a small round earlier this year, only with existing investors. So we didn't want to dilute much, and and we luckily don't need too much cash right now uh, because we're we're at about break even. We kind of did this round to make sure we can sustain our current growth trajectory and could continue to invest in content and in user acquisition. Uh, that said, we're looking at the opportunities. Fight was always kind of, flips and fight was always built with the vision to go wider. And even though we, we focused on combat sports as our uh, beachhead strategy, uh, our ambition is to go to other uh, sports verticals as well and replicate the same business model now that we have the platform, kind of the digital marketing capabilities and, and everything else to uh, succeed in other content verticals. And this would require additional funding. Mm -hmm. And what different content verticals do you think would be in your priority? Uh, it's We're looking at several case by case, almost opportunistically, uh, some projects. Yeah. Uh, but also there are some some areas where we believe will be particularly suitable for, for the pay-per-view model, which is still the majority of our revenues. Uh, things like uh, motorsports, things like uh, live concerts, uh, and a few other verticals. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I see that you want to stay on the long tail um, and not go mainstream. And I see that that's been your strategy for a while now. But I mean, who are some of the potential acquirers for Fight? A potential acquirer down the road who wants to buy Fight, would they want to buy because of your um, supply and the content agreements and even some exclusivities? Or would they come and buy, want to buy the demand that you guys have? Or is it going to be the technology? What do you think? It's um, going after the mainstream. Let, let me first answer the first part of your question. Going mainstream it's for, in sports is super expensive. Yeah. Uh, we don't have deep enough pockets to do that. So we have to be more creative and, and find different niches. Yeah, um, I can imagine. And in a way, getting into the pay-per-view business was a great workaround for us uh, because we managed to uh, get to the point where we streamed the, the really top events in the world in that segment with no upfront licensing fees. And, and we're doing things like uh, 
the last Pacquiao fight, the last Mayweather fight, uh, we did the Canelo Golovkin one and two. So really kind of the top tier events in the industry. Going after, let's say, soccer uh, in Europe or football in the US or some of the kind of baseball is, is prohibitively expensive for us. Uh, unless we uh, partner with some of the bigger companies. And we do have some interesting discussions in that respect because people do realize the value of the kind of technology uh, and the engine we've built. You might see some, some joint projects from us mm-hmm. in the coming months. Uh, other than that, for our core platform, we, we will continue to look at, at places and, and verticals where we could deploy the current model without a lot of investment. Yeah, interesting. Um, I just read a book called um, Seven Powers uh, by Hamilton Helmer. And they had some a chapter on Netflix. And what you said really resonates with, with me because um, just like your pay-per-view model, Netflix also didn't have exclusive content for a while and they were just paying um, with number of users um, and as they were growing the user base. But once they had the big enough user base, then actually licensing that content and buying it on an exclusive basis and shifting the whole industry from pay-per-view to exclusive content did really make sense for them because they had the largest user base. So from a... Uh, per user cost perspective, no one could beat them because they have the largest. And same goes for you. I mean, now uh, pay-per-view might be your weapon and your advantage, but in the future, if you can go further with different verticals, then maybe you might want to um, buy more licensed and exclusive content that would be that would create a, maybe even a larger entry barrier for a new agent. Absolutely. And the thing is, in fragmented markets, generally speaking, the aggregators always win. Because from, from end user perspective, you don't want to go to the website of uh, Paramount and Columbia and all the other studios to, you don't even care who is the producer of the movie. Uh, you just want to watch your content. You want one single destination place with great user experience, great content discovery, where you could find any content of interest. And, and we're in a sense trying to do the same in combat sports, uh, being this destination place that aggregates content from everyone, provides great viewing experience, great content discovering experience. A great user interaction experience because we also have a lot of social tools, mm-hmm. live chats, and, and others. In a sense, Netflix proved this model in with TV series and movies, and, and we believe this is the case also in niche sports verticals uh, as combat sports. Uh, one thing that would probably even in the long run differentiate us from Netflix is mm-hmm. we we're very committed not to compete with our partners. Yeah, we don't plan to ever produce combat sports events ourselves because it's hard to be distributor and producer as well and, and not complicate relationships with your partners. I wanted to ask you that as well. I mean, will you ever try doing that? But um, it's good that you don't want to step onto their foot. So you've just you just killed that idea from the get go. Yes, yes. We, we do help them with some content production around the show. So we have a, our own show, which is called Fighting Focus. And we send a crew uh, around the big events and we do a lot of interviews with fighters, with media, with, uh, with people involved in the event, uh, with the promoters themselves. Uh, and this is something that is a great support material for the event and helps the pay-per-view buys and, and helps engage our audience. And it's free content for every, that everyone could watch on a fight. But this is geared towards helping our content partners promote their events better. And this is one of the kind of big values we bring on the table rather than actually producing our own mm-hmm. uh, our own events. Is combat sports your personal passion as well? I mean, do you personally watch combat sports? Or, I mean, did you before even starting fight? Uh, yes, I, I was actually... Uh, I'm practicing combat sports and have been doing so for 14 years now. Wow. Did 10 years of karate and now um, I'm doing jiu-jitsu. So it has been my passion. I want to think that my passion did not uh, impact the business decision too much uh, when we did <laughs> the analysis. <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> At the end of the day, I'm really happy that for me, this was a great way to kind of connect the dots and do the two things that I love yeah. on, in the same project. 
Yeah, and you're also, I mean, you were also an investment committee member at Launchup Ventures. Um, so you, I'm pretty sure that given your entrepreneurial background, you've started, um, exited and then restarted companies and you've seen probably hundreds of different projects, especially in Bulgaria. What are some of the trends that you see in the Bulgarian ecosystem and how has it evolved over the past decade? Uh, this was a really interesting experience for me. We were actually the first batch of companies uh, that Launchup invested in with our first fund. And we have great relationship with all the partners and we, we try to help them, especially initially with some of the, and we're still involved in some of the reviews, especially when it comes to kind of video and media related projects to help with some of, and provide f- feedback on some of the kind of candidate investments. If you look at the overall trend, we generally see the market maturing very fast. Back a few years ago, there was no, people didn't know what, what venture capital is, literally. So, and, and LaunchHub and Eleven did a great job to educate the market. They invested combined in hundreds of companies in a relatively short period of time. It kind of the whole ecosystem started moving. They did a lot of investments in the whole region, so not necessarily Bulgaria only. Uh, and in a sense, for kind of early stage investments, Bulgaria became a pretty interesting destination point for, for companies from the whole region. Now they're starting to see exits, so, which is great for the ecosystem because also the next generation of entrepreneurs could see the whole life cycle of, of a startup with a successful exit, which is definitely kind of helping motivate the, kind of the next generation. Also, in parallel to what the two funds are doing, there were a couple of interesting exits in Bulgaria, uh, more specifically Telerik which again was a great showcase for what could be achieved taking the kind of the creating a startup and taking the VC funding route. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, LaunchUp almost created the Bulgarian ecosystem and um, we were only able to do one co-investment with them. It's a company called CloudPipes, which mm-hmm. just exited two months ago um, to QuickBase. Yes. Boston-based company. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I, I know Spartak very well. He's a very good friend of mine. Yeah, amazing team, by the way. I mean, Spartak, Marco, Boris, all of them. Absolutely. And we had great experience with Bulgarian entrepreneurs. We also invested into Claim Compass. Okay. Maybe you know the founder, Tatiana, as well. And hopefully we'll do more with our next fund. We want to be more active and we want to co-invest with local funds like LaunchHub or BrightCap. And BrightCap is also involved in the previous round of uh, CloudPipes as well. Um, mm-hmm. Thanks for joining the podcast. Uh, this was a pleasure and I hope all goes well and you launch different verticals within Fight. Uh, my pleasure, Anis. Anytime and uh, happy to uh, follow up with you on a separate discussion. I hinted at some of the kind of things we're working on. So uh, maybe there's an opportunity to chat about them uh, in a few months. Yeah, I'll be there and I'll ping you. Okay, sounds good. Fight still has a long way to go, but Costa's thesis-driven approach is leading him to success. Let's see which new verticals he'll focus on moving forward. And it's great that he raised funding from American, European and local Bulgarian VCs in consecutive rounds. This is the end of today's episode. Our next episode will be with Karoli from Estonia. She started the immigration and relocation services company Jobatical and raised $10 million to date. Here's a snapshot of all the activities we do here at Glocal. Apart from publishing a new podcast episode every Monday, we also publish video summaries on Saturdays. These short 5-10 to 10 minute videos are published across all of our social media channels. I also write brief weekly articles with core insights from every episode. Lastly, we do Tuesday Tips, where we gather advice from very influential people and share it on our social media. To get all that into your email inbox every week, please go to our website, theglocal.co, and subscribe to our email newsletter. We are very active on social media, so I beg you to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. Ciao!